0: Good morning. Are you there? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> All right. That's better. I love it. This is Lesson 35, and if you'll notice at the back of your notes, uh, I have arranged the uh, scriptures in, in parallel so that you can follow not only our text in Mark, but the uh, text in the other uh, gospels i started in your notes with the gospel of john and uh, hopefully the reason for that will become uh, evident as we uh, as we move along a few years ago i was uh, summoned for jury duty they never take me they never take me maybe it's the rope that i bring with me and whatever i don't know but the minute they hear i'm a preacher it's over and uh, Anyway, I, I was there long enough to watch the preliminaries of, of uh, the selection of a jury panel, and, and I'll never forget this young man who would been, had been riding in a car with some other fellows, and the question was, had this fellow just innocently been in the car when they opted to do a crime, uh, or had he actually been a participant in the crime? And and that young man stood there shaking, just physically shaking at the thought of standing before that judge and and that jury panel. If that's your vision of Jesus, then you better change it. Because it's not Jesus who's shaking in his boots. (laughs) It's the religious leaders who are shaking in their boots. I've actually thought about calling this message Mission Impossible. I mean, think about what these guys have to do Or have to attempt to do. They have to uh, orchestrate the arrest of Jesus secretly. Now that mission has been accomplished and it's been accomplished thanks to Jesus who set up the circumstances in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Gethsemane where, where they would know through Judas where he was, where he could be found and when. So that's been done, but even that was a daunting task before it had been accomplished. They have to overturn their earlier embarrassing defeat. Now here I'm thinking about all of the religious leaders putting their heads together at what I call the great debate when Jesus has come and he's cleansed the temple and occupied it and his teaching, and every time they've tried to catch Jesus in his words, They've been the ones who have been shown up to be the fools. Somehow that thought has lingered in the minds of the crowds and certainly in the minds of these guys. And they got to be saying to themselves, haven't we been here before? And if we have, where's this going to take us? Daunting task. How to deal with the crowds who favor Jesus? That was what they feared. They feared doing anything in public because these crowds really loved what Jesus was doing to them. Somehow, they've now got to try and turn the crowd around to where they are with them as opposed to supporting our Lord Jesus. They've got to execute Jesus, but they've got to do so in a very narrow window of time. Now, I mentioned this briefly, when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples... When we look at the, at the Gospel of John in particular, and we see them hurrying through the process of getting Jesus' body down from the cross, and even when you see them refusing to go into Pilate's inner court, and he has to come out to them, it's because they are yet to celebrate the Passover, which obviously is going to happen at the same time as our Lord's death. So they're caught between celebration of the Passover time and Jesus tripping this thing off by saying to Judas, in effect, it's you. He now knows. He has to betray Jesus and get it done. So you've got this very, very narrow window of time to get all of this stuff done. Uh, Stuff that looks like mission impossible. They've got to convince Rome once they're set up, they've got to convince Rome that Jesus ought to be executed, and that's because they have not got the right to do so. They've got to find a crime for which they can convict the perfect Jesus before the Jews, and then they've got to somehow turn that on its head and find another crime for which they can convict the perfect Jesus before Rome under Roman law, and they've got to do that again in a very short period of time. Here's the big one. They've got to do this in such a way that they actually look legitimate rather than laughable in the process. They have to give some aura of legitimacy and pompous piety and all this, or it turns out to be a joke. Now, this next one I put in mental brackets. I didn't do it on, on the screen. What they don't realize is they have a whole lot of prophecies that they have to fulfill, and they don't even know that they're there to do. They've got all of these job descriptions for Messiah that have to be fulfilled, and they're a part of it. So I'm going to tell you the story of my grandmother. Some of you have heard it before. Maybe all of you, and you can blame me and my old age for telling you again. My grandmother at 106 was uh, she came through the depression, among other things, and and, and she would leave uh, the lights on, or if my parents turned the lights off, she, uh, turned them on, she would turn them back off, trying to conserve energy. The problem was that she might fall, and if she fell then she might break something. And if she broke something, she wouldn't be able to stay with my parents. She'd have to go somewhere else. So my dad had this fatherly talk with her on uh, in, in, in several occasions. And, and one day he says to her, now, Mom, it's very important that you leave these lights on because if you fall, then that's going to bring about something that we don't really want. And she listened very politely to my dad. And she said, well, I, I could do that. I could do that. And then typical of grandma, her problem was she would forget. Five minutes later, she meant to do it. She just forgot all about it. Back off goes the lights. So she, she in her kind of impish way, she said to my dad, what if I don't? And my dad, who had spent a fair bit of time in the woodshed. Does that mean anything to you folks? In the woodshed. He says to her, well, mom, I'm sorry, but it'll have to be the woodshed. She pondered that for a minute, and she said, better get help. (laughs) That's the way I feel about these guys. They've got this great goal to accomplish, and you got to say to them, better get help. And i got to tell you, folks, the only help they get is Jesus. If you think Jesus is the one who is somehow struggling with all these circumstances, then you've missed the point. It is the religious leaders who are sweating bullets. It is Jesus who is in charge all the way through to his death and resurrection. Well, you know that there are two trials that are put together in this, in our particular text, and two testimonies that are given. I think it was Hughes in his commentary who said there are two rocks the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness, the Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 10 and Peter the rock, Matthew chapter 16, two rocks, and obviously one cracked in the middle of the process. And so these two stories are put together in such a way that we have to view these two together in comparison with each other. Notice how that happens. In Matthew and Mark, you've got Jesus' trial first, and then Peter's trial and denial second. In Luke, it's reversed. You've got Peter's denial followed by Jesus' trial. And when you come to John, he alternates moving back and forth between Peter and Jesus. And all of that is to say to us, Hey folks, I want you to see these together and to uh, compare them as you do. So my approach is to walk through the events of the text following Jesus' trial and then, and then Peter's denial. Making some observations, which I think are, are critical to us, uh, clarifying some misconceptions that may be there in our minds, contrasting Jesus uh, and uh, Peter, and also contrasting Peter and Judas, and I want to contrast Peter and the other disciple that we find in the Gospel of John. I think that's a significant thing. And then to make some conclusions and applications. Folks, if you think this text doesn't relate to us, you better read it again or hang on to your hats because this is a text that is for us. And I am convinced of that as I study it. All right, here are some observations on the trial of our Lord Jesus. Jesus. I don't think this is a a, a great, profound observation, but there are several trials. In in fact, some actually wonder exactly how many there are. I think what you have to conclude is, from the time that Jesus is arrested and brought to Annas, the uh, high priest emeritus, until our Lord Jesus is handed over to be crucified, there are several trials some that will take place before the Sanhedrin, some that will take place before Pilate and so on, Uh, several trials that we see. R.T. France, and, and I've gained a couple of helpful insights from him on this particular message, even if I fail or forget to give him credit. He says to us, this is not really a trial. What we are talking about here is not really a trial. It would be far more accurate to think of it in terms of a grand jury hearing Grand juries are not finding people guilty and putting them at sentence. Grand juries are trying to discover, is the evidence sufficient to have a charge that will stick? So when a grand jury no-bills somebody, what they're saying is there just isn't enough evidence to proceed with a case. If they do have an indictment, then obviously the trial will follow after that. Well, you see a whole lot of grand jury-like activity going on. The night sessions that take place are an attempt to find that basis. These night sessions that take place are, are really an exploratory fishing expedition where the religious leaders are saying, Man, we've got Jesus now. What do we do with him? And, and whatever we do, I hate to use these words, we must do quickly, they seem to apply, because Passover's coming, we've got to get this thing taken care of. So they're trying to figure out what to do. I couldn't help but think about the situation with Festus and Agrippa in Acts 25. You remember that? The Jews have set up a situation where they, where they want to execute uh, Paul really on his way to trial, not into trial itself. And, and the Romans keep kind of waffling about re- just letting Paul go because there are lack, uh, there's lack of evidence. So all of a sudden, when Paul realizes they're about to send him back to Jerusalem where he'll be uh, try to be executed on the way, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Well, <laughs> now Festus has got himself a real problem. I mean, he's got a case being appealed to the Supreme Court. And he hasn't even figured out what the charges are yet and so he says to Agrippa man am I in trouble hey I got this guy here he appealed to Rome I don't know what I'm going to tell Caesar so Agrippa says well I'll listen and you know see if we can help you out that's what these guys are doing they're trying to find some charge that they can pin on the perfect Jesus lots of luck boys so Jesus advanced the schedule, setting these guys off guard. I think you have to see that. These guys are caught off balance. They did not anticipate Jesus being arrested this quickly and having that deadline of the, uh, of the, the Passover that they have to meet. Now, in the sequence of things, you've got, and the way I lay it out in your, in your uh, notes there, you've got John's Gospel, Then Matthew and Mark, really following the same tack, followed by Luke. That's at least the way I understand the sequence of things. And that's why you have the order that you uh, will find in the scriptures that are put in parallel uh, fashion. So if we follow that, then you'll see in your first column that Jesus is first brought to Annas, who I call the high priest emeritus. He is the one whose son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the official High priest. So this guy's kind of a mafia Don type guy who's still got some kind of, of, of uh, authority, some kind of status. And so he's the first guy to whom Jesus is, is going to be uh, brought. Caiaphas is the guy who makes that earlier statement. You remember what that is in John? Well, don't you guys know anything? Somebody has to die for the good of the nation. Do you realize this? This is like the head of this... I know John Roberts wouldn't do this, and I, and I like it, but suppose that John Roberts was about to hear a case, and he had said the week before, well, it's obvious how this is going to have to come out. That's what he's done. And so you say, goodbye. I wrote in my margin, goodbye objectivity. <laughs> if you got a guy who's going to be the judge who's already decided the guy has to die... It's not much of a trial, folks. And uh, that's, I think, why we're told those words. Annas, I, I, I've been trying to figure out why why this thing with Annas in the first place. And I've got two options in my mind. Number one, they're stalling for time. Now think about that. They They have got Jesus under arrest. They have to gather the Sanhedrin. Over 70 guys. They've got to get all those people assembled in the middle of the night. That's going to take some time. If you stop off and have this parley with Annas, you're buying time. And I, I suspect they're all scrambling. When I look over at Matthew and Mark, it seems to me that they have already assembled by the time Jesus is sent there. So it may be that Annas is simply a time filler, but I think he's more than that. Because he's not officially the high priest... I think Annas is the guy who's going to do the first exploratory fishing expedition, and he's essentially going to say, let's talk about this, Jesus, so that you can give me some self-incriminating evidence. Now, folks, I know we think we invented the Fifth Amendment. It's been around a long time. People do not need to testify against themselves. And so that's the thing that you see Jesus saying... When uh, when he's brought before uh, Annas, Annas begins to ask about Jesus' disciples, number one, and about his doctrine. Now, Jesus, we know, was silent almost all of the time. He's not given up any information about his disciples. Uh, and he basically says, you want to know about my doctrine? Look. I've been teaching in public. I've been right in the middle of the temple for crying out loud. Everything I say is a matter of public record. So if you have something to bring against me, then you produce the witnesses. Don't ask me to be the witness. Pretty elementary political stuff. And uh, an overzealous official doesn't like the way in which Annas has been corrected. So he slaps Jesus. Jesus simply calls attention to the fact that that's not legal either. And he simply says, what I've said is wrong. Fine. If not, then there's something wrong with this. Jesus is already setting it in our minds. There is something wrong with this whole process. It all stinks from a legal point of view. And I would say, not just from the standpoint of the Mishnah, but from the standpoint of Old Testament law, Remember that no one could be executed apart from the testimony of two witnesses. So you to have two people who agree, and they haven't got it here. That's one of the things the text makes very clear. So Annas, having either taken up some time or failed at his fishing expedition for evidence, sends Jesus now on to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, who are going to have this midnight meeting, uh, apparently in uh, Caiaphas's house now Jesus has challenged Annas if you've got accusations then produce the witnesses <laughs> do you notice by the time they get to Caiaphas's house they have witnesses the humor of it is they haven't had time to coach them adequately and so all this testimony comes in you'll see for instance in Matthew and Mark one of the big issues is the temple Because that's a real emotional element. It was a big one with Stephen's death as well. Don't talk against the temple. That would get you in a lot of trouble. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, I am able to destroy this temple and to restore it in three days. In Mark's account, somebody says, I am going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, if you've got two people who had... Agreed on that statement, Jesus would have been in trouble. But the reality was, they didn't agree. Now, my understanding, my assumption is, when you call in a witness, other witnesses are outside. You bring one witness in; they say their piece. They go out. Another one comes back, comes in, and they say their piece. And the problem was, they just hadn't been coached well enough in all this uh, uh, flurry of activity. And these guys can't agree. So here they are with their witnesses who don't agree. Uh, and, and Jesus, uh, in that sense, doesn't really have to say much. Now, I added some things to my notes, and therefore you may want to add them to yours. The temple is prominent, Matthew and Mark, and Jesus remains silent. That's something that you see, and the high priest is really frustrated with this. Pilate's not too happy with it either. But the high priest is, is frustrated with Jesus' silence. Let me give you several reasons Why Jesus may have chosen to be silent or a combination of them. Number one, he wasn't obliged to speak. Number two, he didn't need to speak. They're contradicting themselves. Why does he need to jump into that? They're killing each other off. No problem there. Uh, Number three. If Jesus spoke, he could have shredded those guys just like he did in the great debate. Think about that. All Jesus has to do is open his mouth, and he's going to send them away gaping. How in the world did he pull that off? He has to be quiet because he is the truth, and he would silence all this baloney, I think, in no time. Fourth, they haven't yet got to the significant issue. He's not going to argue over trivia, over petty charges. The critical issue is who is Jesus Christ and what is his mission? When the high priest gets to that question, Jesus is going to answer it. In fact, I would say Jesus felt compelled to answer it. Are you the Messiah? And are you the Son of God? Are you divine? Are you the divine Messiah? Those are the critical questions. Who Jesus is. All right. Oh, there's one more. I'm wondering, and this is going to sound funny to you, but I've tried to point out that the timing of all of this is very, very interesting. That is, Jesus just finishes what needs to be said, upper room discourse, and they move to the next thing. Jesus just finishes what he has to say in the Garden of Gethsemane. There they are. Immediately they arrive. Jesus' timing is perfect. Is it possible that Jesus delays in answering the questions so that the timing of that night is such that they can do nothing else but take him to Rome and to Rome's authority. I don't mean Rome physically, to Pilate. Is he setting things up so even though they would love to stone him, they have to go to, to, to Rome's authority? And if they do, of course, that means crucifixion at just the right time. Jesus is in control, folks, and he's in control of the timing of this as well as everything else. Well, that's for your consideration. But Jesus is silent. That is control. The high priest finally has had it. He charges Jesus, under oath, Matthew says, I place you under oath. Are you the Messiah? Son of God. Now, The other Gospels, basically, Jesus says, uh, you say that I am. That's not what Mark says. Mark says, I am. Is there anything ambiguous about that statement? And is there anything about I am that we don't get? But it's not over. It's not over. Jesus adds to that. And because I am, it doesn't bode well for you. Not only am I the Son of God, not only am I the Messiah, but folks, I'm coming back in the clouds. Now, there are some who want to say that all of that's just talking about His royal authority. It's talking about royal authority, but when you talk about the clouds, folks, He's coming to judge. And what he's saying is, guys, I got to tell you, not only am I the one that you say I am and you want me to say that I am, but you need to understand that's pretty serious stuff for you. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 2, you remember that Peter picks up on that theme and he basically says, hey, this Jesus is raised from the dead. Do you understand what that means for you? They did. And many of them said, what shall we do to be saved? So Jesus is pronounced guilty. He is beaten. And here's the interesting thing, almost ironic. Jesus is pronounced guilty, and then he is spit upon. He is slapped, beaten with fists, and something is placed over his head so that he doesn't see who it is. And they say, prophesy, about that well you know what the interesting thing is isaiah did and they're fulfilling it it says they will smite him it says they will spit upon him (laughs) and jesus in john in mark chapter 10 that's what he said when i go to jerusalem they're going to spit upon me and they're going to abuse me and they're saying hey why don't you prophesy about that jesus is in effect saying i actually i have And everything you're doing is fulfilling it. Do you see the anger and the hostility? I mean, think about this. Think of the Supreme Court. You know, you got all the robes and all this stuff, you know, the the dignity and all of that. These guys are coming unglued. Is that not right? Do you not read the text the way I do? They are coming unraveled. Here are the Supreme Court justices beating on Jesus, spitting on him. Man, there is incredible hostility. Now, when you move to the next stage, you'll see that when Jesus now, and I'm moving over in, in your column to Luke, when you come to that, it seems to me that Luke on the top of his column is picking up what Matthew and Mark have at the bottom of theirs. The way I see that is that the, 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 the the court themselves, the Sanhedrin themselves, these people are beating upon Jesus, beating him up. Now Jesus has already been slapped in John. Now he's being beaten by the, by the court, as it were. And when you come to Luke, it seems to me that now what you have is Jesus being beaten by the guards. Hey, Come one, come all. If the if the the guys who are the leaders can beat on Jesus, so can they. And uh, so that's what you see in that first uh, in that first little bit in in Luke's account uh, at the top of your uh, text. There, Jesus is beaten. Notice now in in Luke twenty two sixty six, it is now day. Now, I take it it's probably early in the day, but it's now officially day. The midnight madness sessions are over. Now it's daytime. I take it that there is this semblance of legality by this official assembly of the Sanhedrin. And all they really need to do is to get Jesus to say again what he's already said. So they ask the question and Jesus says, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And if I asked you a question, you wouldn't answer it. In other words, he's saying this isn't really an objective thing at all, just for the record. But he's pressed. And so Jesus is asked, and he once again makes his great confession. And he is pronounced, uh, with all the righteous indignation, pronounced guilty of uh, his offense. That brings us to Peter's trial and his threefold denial of our lord jesus observations there is another disciple is there not john's gospel is that not so clear but but there's a, not only are, are we told there's another disciple i think generally it's assumed that, that it's john may well be we're just not given his name one of the disciples is known to the high priest Peter, who I've always thought of as terms of the gatekeeper of the, of the city of God, can't get through this gate. It's some slave gal has kept him out. So if it's John or whoever, he knows the high priest, knows these people. He goes to the gate, gets Peter in to the courtyard of our Lord's trial. But when you look at your text, notice that it, it says, In every accusation, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are you not one of this man's disciples Two, Does it not? Also? Or two? In other words, if it's two, then there must be, I don't mean number two, but also two. If there is some other disciple, then obviously there are two disciples there. Isn't it interesting in all of this, that Peter gets in so much trouble for being a disciple of Jesus and denying it (laughs) when the other disciple admits it and doesn't have any trouble at all. I I just find that fascinating. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit more. So he gets Peter in and he does not deny the, the Lord Jesus. And we know from future events that he will be free. He'll be at the cross if it's John so on. Each gospel has three denials. The accuser changes some, and I almost made up a chart of that, and I thought, well, you know, what's the point? It starts out, if I, if I understand correctly, that it's the servant girl, the slave girl of the high priest, who is in charge of keeping the gate there. That's the one who, when she sees Peter's face in the firelight, says, ah, I know you. Now, the other part of it is, if it was John or whoever it was who came to her and spoke to her and said, he's okay, he's with me, and they know he's a disciple of Jesus, then it's not really Harvard logic to come to the conclusion, if this is a disciple of Jesus, he's just spoken in favor of this other guy, then why wouldn't he be a disciple of Jesus too? So it's kind of, in a way, a kind of a simple deduction that takes place. I take it then that this gal, although she's kind of pushed off in the first answer, she persists and says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. This has got to be right. So she starts talking to other people, right? This guy, I know this guy was one of them. And then the other people are saying, did you listen to the way this guy denied Jesus? (laughs) He's got that accent, you know, that Galilean accent. He's got to be one of them. So I suspect that there were a number of people who entered in as this discussion went on. And so Peter's denial could be answering several different people in the crowd, but it's basically three denials. That's the way I read the text and the minor distinctions that take place. Each accusation seems to build upon the previous one, to where you get kind of this more consensus that takes place uh, at the at the last confrontation. Uh okay. The accusations that Peter is uh, are the accusation is that Peter is one of them. One of Jesus' disciples. One who would be a supporter, one who would be a co-rebel, so on. That seems to be the essence of of what the issue might be. Peter's denials become more emphatic as the time goes on ending up with an oath. And uh, boy, that last one, Luke's text, is that not a piece of perfect timing again? Peter has just denied his Lord the third time. The cock has just crowed the second time and somehow, perhaps as Jesus is being brought out and moved to this next wave of inquisition, he catches Peter's eye. That to me is just chilling. And, and obviously, it was worse. It was gut-wrenching for Peter. All right. Now, here's where I'm going I'm to take a little different approach. I My personal opinion is, The more we gang up on Peter, the more we see his denial as some kind of exceptional atrocity, then the more distant it becomes from us. I would like to suggest that his denial is far closer to home than that. But let me lay a little groundwork for you. Number one. Peter was willing to die. When Jesus uh, told Peter that he would deny him, Peter emphatically said, I am willing to die for you. Do you think that he wasn't willing to die when he pulls out a dagger in the midst of a fully armed group of people? (laughs) He was willing to die. I don't see how we can miss that. He was willing to keep his word to Jesus. Peter unlike nine other disciples, was actually there in the courtyard where Jesus was being held. Hey, folks, don't give me this coward stuff as though Peter somehow is hiding off in the woods. Peter is still following Jesus. With John, granted, but he's there, folks. That's got to count for something. He is still a follower of Jesus. When he is identified, he does not leave. Would you not say, for instance, look at Judas. When, when, when the question is raised, when Judas says to Jesus, Is it me? And Jesus says, Yep. He's out. He's gone. He's not coming back. Peter stays. Oh, he may move over here or there, but he's still in the courtyard. Still there with Jesus. He didn't leave even when he's challenged. Ah, here's one. Some people tend to take the status, slaves, of those people in the courtyard and, and make it look like, hey, who are they? Peter's afraid of them. Let's think about that for a minute. The initiator, the gatekeeping slave girl, is a slave of the high priest. If you were bucking for a promotion, don't you think... That if the disciples slipped through the fingers of the arresting party and you could put them onto a couple of uh, of the disciples who were there within reach, I mean standing there with the guards. (laughs) I gotta tell you, it would be in her interest to wrap them out. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't play her down too much. She obviously had some access to the high priest and certainly knew what he was about. The second is this. We know from John's gospel that one of those standing there pressing the case was apparently in the garden. Didn't I see you in the garden? And oh yes, they just happened to be a relative of Malchus. Now, think about that. You're Malchus' cousin. Peter's just lopped off his ear don't you think they'd have some personal interest in justice? <laughs> so I said to you, don't write these folks off too fast. They have some interest at stake in this in this whole event. Next, Peter's curses, I think it is generally agreed, are not curses against Jesus. They are curses pronounced on himself. In other words, may I be accursed if... This is not true. Not may he be accursed. May I be accursed. Peter's love for Jesus remained. Folks, when he looks at Jesus and Jesus catches his eye and Peter goes off weeping, is that not the tears of a man who still loves the Savior? He still loves him. Peter leaves not out of fear, but out of grief. When Peter finally flees, it is because he cannot stand the load of guilt and grief. It is not, oh my goodness, they figured me out. It's, oh my goodness, how do I stay here with what I've done? That's my sense, at least reading of the text. So Peter's denial is about being one of the Lord's disciples. Now, I have to confess, I've done some reshuffling of my cards after my PowerPoint, so I'll try to stay with myself as I go through this. Regarding Peter, Peter's denial is not like the denial of Judas. When Judas denied his Lord, he betrayed him. When Judas denied his Lord, he left him, never to return. Judas never believed in Jesus. When you come to Peter's denial, it seems to me, it's not that he ceased to love Jesus. It's not that he ceased wanting to follow Jesus. It was that he wanted to follow Jesus from a distance because of the danger that was involved of being identified with him and his failed cause. I say failed if you read... Uh, Acts chapter or, or uh, Luke chapter 24 here are these two disciples saying hey we put all our stock in Jesus we believed in him and just it's all just flopped that's probably the way Peter felt at that moment in time failed cause why identify with it so it's really an issue of identification as I see it he still loves Jesus and follows him. He just doesn't want to be closely identified with him and with his cause. I say, therefore, that Peter's denial is really a lack of faith, not a lack of love, not a lack of belief in Jesus, but a lack of faith in Jesus to deliver him. Now, that's where I think the other disciple comes in. When you think about the other... Let's call him John for now. Let's just think about this. Here's John who's there in the courtyard, known to the high priest and his people, known to be a disciple of Jesus. What happens to John? Nothing. Why? Because they slipped up? No, because Jesus said, not one of my followers will be lost not one john couldn't be arrested do you see that just like jesus every time they tried to arrest him or kill him before they couldn't because it wasn't his hour john was safe it was peter who was at risk because he didn't believe he was safe as i see it at least uh anyway we'll get back to that perhaps Ah, here's one. Peter's denial is all too similar to what we do. Okay, here's where I really change my notes. I'm going to turn my page over to my handwritten notes on the back side. You know what this text is about? It's about identification. It's about identification with Jesus. Think about that. Baptism. Baptism was a sign of distancing oneself from works, from false teaching, from false religion, from Judaism, as it was known in that day, and an identification with Jesus, was it not? Baptism is identification. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. All of Israel identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We identify with Jesus in the water. We with Him died to sin. We with Him were raised to newness of life. Baptism is screaming identification. And so is the Lord's table. The Lord's table in the bread says, God identified with us by taking on perfect human flesh. And the cup says, we identify with Him by partaking of what He has done on our behalf. Folks, that's the gospel. The gospel is embracing His identification with us and making, by faith, our participation with Him public to other people. Well... That's what identification's about. Hey, think about this. All the instances in the epistles, some of which we saw this morning, which say in him You think maybe that Paul was trying to get something across that it was important for us to see that it's our identification with Christ that matters most? Paul says in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. All of my life, Paul says, is wrapped up in Jesus. Philippians 3. Even my suffering, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. It's about Him and me identifying with Him in every aspect of my life. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, says this. Our identification with Christ is evidenced by our joyful suffering for Him and by our identification with others who are suffering for Him. We identify with Jesus by identifying with people who trust Him and suffer for it. Okay. Now that takes us to false testimony. When you look at the Old Testament, isn't it interesting, one of the commandments has to do with false witness. False witness, false testimony. The difference between denial and deception is a thin and dangerous line. See, we look at at Peter's denial, and we say to ourselves, oh, that's shameful. Okay? So what if we... What if we go to another part of the world, and because missionaries are not accepted, we cease to say anything. I'm not talking about identifying ourselves with a particular denomination, a particular church, even with Christendom in in there, whatever that means. But I'm saying this. When we minimize or play down our identification with Jesus, then, my friends, we're on Peter's trail are we not? Are we not? Now, think about that for us. Not far away now, but think about that for us. How often do people really see us and say, there is somebody, remember like Acts chapter 4, they recognized Peter and John as people who had been with Jesus. In terms of our passions, in terms of our conversation, in terms of our attitudes and actions, how many people would look at us and say, they're with Him! They're with Him! See, if they can't say that, and I'm afraid that certainly is true of what people might not be able to say about me. If that's true, then friends, I might as well say to Peter, move over. Whatever he's done that is so bad is something that every Christian needs to contemplate and ask, am I doing that in some way, shape, or form? All right, let's get to Jesus. I I confess, I turned it around and I saved Jesus for last because I always save the best for last. So let's talk about this. Our confession should be his confession. Should it not? Our confession should be his confession. So what does he confess? One, he is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Two, he is the Son of God. Our profession is Jesus was and is God. Thirdly, our profession is that because Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah, he is coming back to judge those who will not identify with him. That's the message that we can't deny that Jesus proclaimed. Secondly, Jesus is in control. In the most chaotic, devastating time of all history, As I read these texts, I say to myself, they're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. He is bringing about his death in his time and in his way. (laughs) Man, those guys, you know, if I feel anything for them, it's pity. You know, remember what the Lord said to Peter, why do you kick against the pricks? (laughs) You know, Hello, isn't there a message coming through to you, Paul? Haven't you figured this out yet? Jesus is in control. If we resist, deny Him, then uh, we're in trouble. Jesus is the faithful witness. Notice that in Revelation. The faithful witness. We would do well to listen to Him. Here's one. Jesus remained faithful to His calling even when all others... Forsook him. Now, that really takes us to 2 Timothy, does it not? If we deny him, he will deny us. That, to me, is Judas. If we are faithless, he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Folks, at the very worst moment in history... <laughs> Jesus persisted on the course of the cross when all else forsook Him. And as we talked about on Friday, it had to be Jesus alone, folks. Jesus alone. It wasn't Jesus in the center, Peter and John on the left and the right. Jesus alone was the one who could die for sinners. Jesus alone is the one who pursues that path to the cross even when his dearest friends forsake him. I would say this. When I look at Peter, I do not see a man who is weak. I see a man who is strong. I see Peter as standing out above and in front of his fellow disciples. And the lesson for me is, if Peter can fall, I better be very careful. You know, I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul talks about the spiritual armor. You know what the very next thing he says is? Pray for me that I may be bold. The thing that Paul feared most was to become Peter-like. And you and I ought to fear it too. But the way we deal with it is not to think and boast about our faithfulness as Peter did. It is to think every week about his faithfulness. That's where our faith rests. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that He chose to identify with us unto the cross. Thank you that even when your followers are faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you so much for Peter's restoration. Thank you for the hope and the confidence that that gives to us. Father, I pray that there is no one here who has refused to identify with the Lord Jesus in his saving work of taking on sin. May they understand their wretchedness like all of ours. May they trust in Jesus and what he has done and identify with him. For that is where salvation rests. In his name we pray. Amen.